0: Well, good morning. It is so good to be back with you all, having been in the big church last week, but now we are back in the book of Haggai. So turn there in the book of Haggai to Haggai chapter 2 or so. And as you're turning there, let me just make a few words of introduction. The first one is that uh, this introduction will have some tangents, I just want to give a qualifier, a heads-up. But the tangents are planned. There's two of them. So Lord willing, by the grace of God, we will return from each of the tangents back to the main point of the message. However, if we don't, know that I have a backup plan. I'm supposed to preach the last part of Haggai anyways. So there's, there's a fail-safe mechanism. But after I wrote 12 pages on the first tangent, I thought, "Uh uh-oh, that's the message for two weeks. So then I wrote the second one, which was even longer. And then I just threw all those pages away because I thought, well, I should just not be distracted. But it's still in your head and in your heart, so we'll just see what happens. But Lord willing, we will try to contain this. And both of them, even though they're rabbit trails in a sense, I hope, And I can hope you will see that they are absolutely necessary. So by this point, you should be in the book of Haggai. And let me just begin by saying this. As we have observed the minor prophets, they are not minor. They may be small in size, but they are deep in content. And Haggai has been one of these books, as we have seen, it is a practical book. It is a down-to-earth book. It calls us to obedience and faithfulness. It calls us to have the right perspective and priorities. And it does so by not just talking about things in generalities, but by talking about things in the particulars, walking us through the process so that we get it exactly right. Haggai is a good coach because he takes us step by step about thinking rightly and doing rightly before the Lord. And as a good coach and really a good preacher, he does exactly what 2 Timothy 3.16 reminds us about the nature of scripture. That scripture is meant for reproof. Scripture is meant for rebuke. Scripture is meant for training in righteousness. And that's exactly what Haggai does in his book. He starts by rebuking us. He starts by rebuking the people of God and says, this is what you've done wrong. And there are times when we need our sin pointed out to us, but he doesn't just stop there. He then tells us what to do. He then tells us the full nature of obedience, that it's not just an external action. It starts from the heart and it is unto the Lord so that he is pleased and glorified. That's the full nature of obedience. And then he recounts and narrates the nature of repentance. That repentance isn't just feeling bad. It isn't just feeling sorry. No, the text says this, they feared Yahweh. They feared Yahweh. That is the nature of true repentance. And within this, and I glory in this all the time, the beauty of repentance is not just how we change and we turn to God. The true beauty of repentance is how God then turns to his people. Because God could say, yes, you repented, yes, you changed, yes, you turned, but it's too late. I don't accept it, I reject it, but God does not do that. In Haggai chapter one, what we see is as the people turn to God, God, instead of sending a message of of condemnation as he did earlier with Haggai, he commissions a message of comfort to them. And he says to them, I am with you, I am with you. The beauty of repentance isn't what we do relative to God. That is the necessity of repentance. The beauty of repentance is what God does for his people who are repentant. That's amazing to behold. And within all of this then, as Haggai is walking people from your disobedience to your obedience to your repentance, then he gives them encouragement. And that's what we saw in chapter 2. This past week, we saw his encouragement to God's people to persevere, specifically in the context of Haggai, to persevere in their work of rebuilding the temple. And what I marvel at in this encouragement in the opening verses of chapter 2 is how Haggai emphasizes what God will do, and notice the words of this text, what God will do with this house this house, he says over and over and over again, I will fill this house, verse seven, because the silver is mine and the gold is mine, God says, and the glory of this house will be greater now, later than it is at this current moment or ever before. Notice the phrase over and over, this house. What is this house? They are working on a temple for God. They are working on Yahweh's house. And God, through Haggai, is pointing out to the very building that they are building. And he is saying, what you are doing right now, as you physically work on constructing this physical structure, this very one in front of you, I will use that one for my glory. This is not that God will indirectly use what they do and it consequentially in the end will work out for good. No, God takes exactly, directly, immediately what they are doing and he uses it for his glory. This is in part because God, in the mind of God, he views all temples, even though we would see them as each individual structures, he views every one of those structures as one ongoing entity, There is no division between them. Yes, they may have different iterations and such, but they are one agenda, one unified reality. And therefore, Israel needs to take courage that what they are doing, as they even do a feeble effort before God, God will use that directly for his glory. It is exactly what 1 Corinthians 15 reminds us, that your work and your labor for the Lord is not in vain this is what we must remember. And this is how Haggai encourages God's people about building the temple. Now you might say at this point, yes, that is very encouraging to know that God would take your individual work, the work of your hands, what you are physically doing at the moment, and he would use that very thing. That would have a direct impact on his plan. That's really nice for the people of Haggai's day, but sadly for us, it, we're not building any buildings, we're not building any structures, we're not a part of that, and so maybe there's a conceptual analogy, but we just don't have it like that. At this point, I'd like to correct that misconception. That is not true. In fact, what I would suggest and what I know the scripture would demand of us is that this, is that just as Haggai's people were involved in the work of the temple and I directly related to what God would do at the end. God has the same thing for us now. This is not indirect. This is not analogous. Haggai's words, Haggai's hope, the message of perseverance, the message of encouragement is directly related to us. And you say, how so? Well, here we go with the first tangent. Because you have to understand God's plan for the temple. You have to understand God's plan for the temple. After all, why is God so insistent that Israel rebuild his house? It's just the building. What is the significance of this structure? What is his purpose and agenda in his plan behind it? And the whole idea of temple relates to God's agenda to be present to have his presence known among his people, to know and be known by the world. And this agenda is entrenched in the very way that he created this world. It is found and begun in the beginning. It is found and begun in Genesis chapter 2. God breathes in man the breath of life. He relates with man in the garden. He walks with man and woman in the garden. There is relational closeness between God and man, and he creates relational closeness between man and animals and man and woman. Why? Because he wants to know and be known by his people. It's for this very reason that the first time the name Yahweh, God's relational name is used, is in Genesis chapter 2, because he wants to know his people and he wants to be known by them. And the fall did not deter that. The fall did not deter that. There is a time, and you probably remember this in, later on in Genesis, where Jacob has a dream at a place called Bethel. And in his dream, he sees a ladder or a staircase going between heaven and earth and angels ascending and descending upon it. What is the message? The message is this, God has not left us. God has not forsaken us. God has not abandoned us. He is not in a deistic model where he has completely separated from this world. No, God is present. God is here. In fact, what is absolutely fascinating, in that section of Genesis, the word or the phrase, with you, with him, That is, God is with him. That is, God is with you. That kind of language is used more times in that point of Genesis, in those chapters of Genesis, than anywhere else in Genesis by a factor of 10. This is the message. God is with us. That is the lesson of Jacob. And in fact, that is why Bethel is even called Bethel because Bethel means house of God. And the message is clear. Our God has not left us. He wants to know us, and he wants to be known by us. And so what is the first structure that Israel constructs after they're freed from the Exodus? It is the tabernacle. And what does Solomon build? The temple. The message is always clear. God desires to be present with his people. In fact, that is reiterated and carried through not only in history, but in the prophets. And in the prophet Isaiah, you hear these words and we're familiar with them because they even relate to books like the book of Nahum, God will fill the earth with his glory. He wants to know and be known by his people. He has always had an agenda for relational presence with his own. That has always been the message. That has always been the signal, the beacon of hope that the temple is, is that God has not abandoned us. He has not left us behind. He is with us. He is here and he will make all things right. That is the message of the temple. And with that though, we need to understand what does it really mean that God is with us? What does it really mean that God will fill the earth with all of his glory? What does it really mean that God wants to know us and be known by us? And the book, the book that establishes all of this in its fullness, in every layer and every level of what that means is the book of Ezekiel. It is the book of Ezekiel and you don't need to turn there but just walk and mentally think through that vision that Ezekiel has in Ezekiel chapter one. Ezekiel chapter one. In Ezekiel chapter one, Ezekiel sees the glory of God. This is about his presence. This is about his weightiness. And in that vision, if you recall, he starts to see this chariot throne of God and the wheels are shaped in this way. It says a wheel within a wheel. Have you ever wondered what a wheel within a wheel is? There's a one wheel that moves one direction, and there's another wheel that is offset by 90 degrees in another direction. If you actually put these two wheels together, what you get is a ball. It's a ball. It's a sphere. That is the shape that Ezekiel is describing. Two circles co-circumscribed in such a way that one moves in one axis and the other moves on the alternate axis so that now you have a ball. And it's nice if your wheels are actually not cylindrical but spherical. Why? Because you never have to turn. When in soccer, do they say, well, we got to reset the ball and make sure that we turn it the right direction. They don't do that. They just kick it and it goes. And that is the nature of God's presence. He doesn't turn it. It's always straight. It's always forward. It's always direct. And that is partly God's presence. But here Ezekiel sees this wheel within a wheel. It's a ball. It's a sphere. And then after he sees this, he sees four living creatures that have different faces of different animals. And then after that, he sees above it an expanse, a sky, a firmament. And above all of that is the glory of God manifested in one like a man. Now, think about this with me. What does it look like? What is described when you have a big ball and in this ball or around this ball are a bunch of animals and above the ball is something called a firmament or the sky and man is ruling over it. What is that? The earth, the earth. What Ezekiel is seeing in essence is the earth, the whole world. And what is the message? God's glory shall fill the entire world earth. That's the first aspect of Ezekiel's vision. What does it mean that God will fill the earth? You could call this his cosmic presence, that he will actually fill every corner, every area, every millimeter of this created order, all of it from animals to the space to that which is above the space all of that will be consumed with his glory. But here's a second aspect of it. If you study the book of Ezekiel chapter one, what you will soon realize is that the language of Ezekiel chapter one is found in another item, another entity. And that is this, it is found in the description of the tabernacle and the temple. Think about this if you went and you've read the description the blueprints of the tabernacle and you wonder why do we have to read these things we're never going to build one. they only do that in homeschool projects i don't do that now the real reason though is so that you understand what is actually happening why is it that the upper part of the tent is blue why is it that there are all kinds of engravings of trees inside the temple? Why is it that there is a basin filled with water on 12 oxen? Why is all of that there? What does it all depict? It depicts the world. It depicts Eden. And what it ultimately depicts as God's glory comes down is that God's glory will fill the earth. It's a message. It's a message that anyone at the ancient time could read and understand, and you didn't need words to explain it. It's all depicted pictorially in that way. And because of this, and because of the nature of Israel's temple, Israel's temple becomes an epicenter to the world to remind them God will not just abstractly dwell in this world. God will concretely dwell in this world and everyone will recognize that it is not just any God, but the God of Israel. This God, Yahweh, the one true God. And all nations, they will recognize this is the God. This is the only one God and he dwells amongst all. And he subjects all to his glory. And that is precisely why, if you remember in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel doesn't just have this spectacular vision, but do you not recall that God's glory in Ezekiel departs from the temple? And then he returns in the millennial temple in Ezekiel 40 through 48. There is another aspect of God's glory that Ezekiel talks about. God does not just fill you could say in a way that is cosmic, God fills the earth with his glory in a way that is corporate, so that every nation, every political area, every country understands there is one God. This is how he wants to know and to be known. So we have two levels so far. We have the cosmic level as God fills the entire universe with his glory. We have the corporate level where his glory is known among all the nations with an epicenter in Israel's temple. But there's a third level. There's always three, it's a sermon. But no, this is actually true. Here's what's spectacular to understand. We see God's glory fill the earth. We see God's glory fill temples. And then that spirit of Ezekiel chapter 1, that vision, it says in Ezekiel chapter 2, that spirit enters Ezekiel. It enters Ezekiel. And this is anticipating what we know later on that Ezekiel will say. God says, I will put my spirit in your heart. Ezekiel isn't just seeing God's glory in the temple, Ezekiel becomes the temple. Ezekiel becomes the temple. And that is the way that God communes with individuals. He communes with individuals. And so now we have three levels, three levels of temple, three levels of God's presence. We have him filling the whole universe, infinite. We have him filling the earth so that internationally he's known. And we even have him filling individuals so that he is known and will be known from the inside out. God's filling of this world with his glory, the way that he desires to be known for all to be consumed with him is not just external, it goes all the way to your what? To your heart. So that he alone, he alone in every space, whether that be this world or the universe, natural or supernatural, individual or corporate, we only know one and we only know who? Him. That is God's agenda. Now, you say, what does this have to do with what you were talking about? Well, if you stop and think about this then, as Israel is building their temple, as Israel is building God's house, they continue the plan of God relative to that second level, that corporate level, that international level. We recognize that. And that God will take exactly what they are doing to advance his plan and glorify himself. That is absolutely true. But think about the New Testament now. Think about passages like 1 Corinthians 3.16 or 1 Corinthians chapter 6 or 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Does it not say your body is the temple? You are the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, it's fascinating in 2 Corinthians 6, as we covered a previous time, it says this, your body is the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. Glorify God with your life. Just as God's glory filled the temple, now you are to glorify God because you are the temple. And here we start to realize that just as Israel continued one part of God's three-tiered plan for his presence, they continued to demonstrate and advance his plan directly of his corporate presence. So we continue directly with our lives, his plan for how he dwells from the heart. We are part of that plan everything you do is part of that plan. Your sanctified life is directly part of that plan. It is part of something bigger. One day, when the millennial kingdom comes and God's glory fills the earth from the inside out, people will say, people in Haggai's day were faithful, that's why this moment could happen. But people will also say, it was because we were also faithful and that's why this happens the way it does. God directly uses all of us in this. Why? Because we are all part of that one agenda. It's always been God's agenda of how he wants to know us and to be known by us. And so Haggai's words, they're not just indirectly about us. And his encouragement is not just indirectly about us. Yes, we do learn about how God will use Israel and how that temple built will be magnifying them and magnifying their work, absolutely true. But there is a direct parallel because we're all part of the same work. We're all part of the same agenda. We're all part of the same plan. And it is God's plan for his presence to be known. And so in light of that, Haggai gives us instruction that's not just indirectly about us, it's directly about us. And we should never forget, we should never forget, as you struggle through your sanctification, God is using it for a much greater glory than you could ever imagine. The glory of this house later will be more glorious than anything you have ever seen before. He is using it for his glory. Well, at this point, Haggai has rebuked and he's called people to obey and he's seen repentance and he's given this encouragement that everything is worth it, that God is going to use what you do in a greater plan and in a greater way. And it isn't just incidental to it, it's directly related to it. And you might wonder, well, is there anything else? Is is there any other blessing in it all? And Haggai, he's got half a chapter left of chapter two And his answer is yes. He's the coach. He's the practical guy. And so he says there are actually two more blessings, and we will cover the first blessing this week, Lord willing. And the first blessing is this You want to know, on top of everything that he's just said, how obedience blesses? It's simple. Obedience blesses because it restores your relationship with God, it rejuvenates your relationship with God. Now, This assumes, and Haggai's assuming, and we need to make what is assumed explicit, that we understand how wonderful it is to know God, how wonderful it is to have a relationship with God. And so this is the second aside. It's to survey and think just devotionally for a second about the beauty of having a relationship with God. Because if you don't understand that, then saying the blessing of obedience is having a relationship with God is pretty superficial. But if you understand that this is everything, now you understand both the blessing of it and the motivation for obedience as well. Several weeks ago, we sang the song, Give Me Jesus. You can take this whole world from me, just give me Jesus. And I love that song but what I love equal to that song is watching you all sing it because it resonates so deep in our heart. Because when everything is said and done and when we really think objectively and when we really think deeply and when we really think instinctively about these matters, that is the truth. All we want as Christians is Jesus. That is who defines us. The very word Christian means those who are consumed with Christ. Give me Jesus. Take the whole world from me. Just give me Jesus. Why is that? Well, fundamentally, of course, it is because we've been regenerated to understand the glories, but here are just some of them. We we cannot survey through all of them. In fact, that's what eternity is for. Only eternity could summarize every detail every nuance, and every act of why Jesus is so beautiful to us. But let me just give you a few. Why does our heart resonate with give me Jesus? Well, for one, think about his name. In Exodus 34, 6-8, it reminds us at a time when Israel should have been annihilated, God says, I'm full of compassion. I'm slow to anger. I forgive sins, transgressions, and iniquities. God, in that verse, he lists basically every single Hebrew word that there is for sin, just so that you understand he can forgive and he will forgive anything. It's amazing to think about that. It's amazing to think, why why give me Jesus? Psalm 46, a mighty fortress is our God and an ever-present help in trouble. The idea of an ever-present help means this, he's always found. He's in the present state always of being found. You never have to search for him, he's found. He's not lost ever. People say, where is God? He's found. You don't have to ask the question, he's there. He's there before you ever needed him. He's always found. We rely on that. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget any of his benefits. You have a lifetime of grace. And as we've learned before, there is never a time in our lives where we have never had grace. We've had always had common grace in our existence here. And even if God strikes us down today, all we will experience is his grace because we are captured into heaven to see grace fulfilled forever. We have only known a life of grace. We have never experienced an existence without grace. That is a God worth knowing. We think about Deuteronomy 6. And in Deuteronomy 6, the children are instructed to ask their parents, why do we keep the law? What does this law mean? And the opening words of the parents, they are instructed to be about this. You might think, well, of course, you have to talk about the sovereignty of God. Of course, you have to talk about his majesty. Of course, you have to talk about his holiness. And that is all true. But the opening words of the parents is this, our God saved us from Egypt. You wanna know why, Jesus? Because he's our hero. Because he's the one who delivered us from certain doom. We would not live apart from him. Give me Jesus. Think about this, in Psalm 29, we understand the majesty and the might of God. It's illustrated in a thunderstorm. I know we don't have any of those in California, but you can watch them on YouTube if you forget about how they work. And it's spectacular power. It's spectacular energy. It's spectacular repercussions. It even causes animals to give birth and life cycles to occur. It is magnificent what God can do in a thunderstorm. And in fact, of course, this relates even in Psalm 29 with the fact that God causes the flood and that is power upon power, power enough to destroy the world. But do you know what the text says? For all of that power, which reflects God's omnipotent power, the final line is this, and he gives that strength to his beloved You wanna know? Yes, God is a God of omnipotent power. He is of unlimited might. He has all might and strength. But do you know what he does with that? He gives it to those he loves. He gives it all to them. He is one of omnipotence. And how do you know his omnipotent might? How do you know how unlimited his energy, his strength is? Because he gives himself. And you say, how far does that go? He gives his own son. He gives you everything. And here you start to see the mystery of God. Here is God, Colossians one, over everything. That's what the text says, all in all, all things through him. That's what makes God preeminent. That's what makes him distinctly other, that there's everything and there's God. He's above it all. But what does he do with all those things? 1 Corinthians 3 says this, all things are yours in Christ. God could own everything and flaunt it in your face that he owns everything and you don't and that he is great and you are small and he has every right to do that and he does. But this is what he does instead. He says, all things are mine. So now they're yours because I love you. This is a God worth knowing. Give me Jesus. This is the God who is transcendent over everything, distinct above all things, totally other than us, separate from us, holier and totally perfectly holy from us. And what does he do with the dust of the ground? He adopts them as his son. He adopts them as his son. We don't deserve that. We are supposed to be far from him. And what does he do instead? He brings us near. That's what he does. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. We need to know and we need to be convinced in our heart that there is no one who has given more to us than our God. And that there is no one who has sacrificed more for us than our God. And therefore, there is no one who loves us more than our God. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. And so Haggai here says, he says, you want to know, Israel, why obedience is a blessing? You want to know what great repercussion happens? What you gain from this practically? It's this. Now you have Jesus. Now you have God. And he's everything you need. Take the world from you. You don't need that. Just give me God. Just give me my relationship with God. And it's enough. And that's what Haggai reminds us. And so from verses 10 through 19, hey, we made it through the introduction. That's good. (laughs) In verses 10 through 19, we're going to see four realities of being reconciled to God, four realities of being reconciled to God. And in this process of seeing our relationship restored to him and the beauty of that relationship and the beauty of obedience thereby, there are a lot of lessons to learn about the character of God. There are a lot of lessons of what how our relationship with him works, the dynamics of that. But the punchline of it all, the point of it all in verses 10 through 19 is simply this. You want to know the beauty of obedience? You want to know what you tell yourself as you obey and you're wondering, is this worth it? It's simple. Give me Jesus. He's everything. You can take this world from me. The disobedience isn't worth it. Just give me Jesus. And so with that in mind, here is the first of the four points. Why is that so funny? <laughs> yeah, I agree. Well, who knows how, f- this, will we'll end on time, I guess. Here's the first point, present blessing, present blessing, verse 10. And oh yeah, by the way, if we don't, I mean, of course we'll end on time, but if we don't finish, see that the blessing of this is that I have the other week, so, and that one is supposed to only be about three verses, so, you know, balance, averages, you know, things like that, we'll we'll get it, but in any case, here we are, first point, present blessing, present blessing, notice the date, verse 10, 24th day of the ninth month of the second year of Darius, and you say, who cares about a date? Does that really matter? Haggai cares about dates. His whole book is structured around dates, and every date matters. Every date matters. This is three months to the very day after Israel starts to rebuild the temple. Three months to the very day. About two months after his last prophecy. And you could argue, rightly so, that this is the three-month anniversary. There is encouragement needed. There is perseverance that is required. And that is absolutely true. In fact, many prophecies will be dated to the 24th of the month just to keep Israel going. The book of Zechariah, if you look at the next passage over, it's dated to the 24th of the month as well. So, That just illustrates that God, on the anniversary of the construction of the temple, gave message after message after message just to keep his people persevering in the work. We all need encouragement. We all understand that. That is absolutely true. However, however, what we need to understand is that can't be the only purpose behind this, because you could give a lot of messages on different years and in different stages and all these kinds of things, and they would all be encouraging. Why this moment? And what we will see later on is this is the moment that Israel actually finalizes laying the foundation of the temple. It was laid earlier, but then it went into disrepair, and so they had to refurbish it and renovate it and reestablish it. And this day is the moment where they have founded the Foundation of God's house. And what God shows them is the moment you obey, I accept you back. The moment you obey, I take you back. And you say, does that really matter? Oh, timing? It matters. It matters. Think about it in the medical world what do we often ask our doctor when he gives us a set of pills to take? How long will do I have to take this and will this act quickly and when will I start to feel better? Think about commercials and what they say. Oh, this is fast acting. This is quick. This is instant relief. There is no commercial that I have ever seen. Please send me one if I am wrong. I would enjoy it. That says this product takes forever to work. <laughs> this product has a long delay to work. This product has, will test your patience as it tries to work. That kind of marketing means it doesn't work. We don't like it when things take time. We don't like it unless we're holding a grudge. And then we like to hold it out. Unless we're bitter and we hold on to it and we prolong forgiveness. Do you want to know the amazing thing about our God? Is this the moment you come back to him, he forgives. Don't ignore a date. God's people say, here's the foundation. We laid it. And immediately God says, as the text says, he sent a word of Yahweh to Haggai to tell them, I accept, I accept, I will bless you. You're back, we're back. That is the amazing thing of our God. We know that sometimes you sow and you have to wait many, many days to reap the goodness of God. We know and we understand that but there are some things that you sow and you reap instantaneously and the blessings of the relationship with God that's one of them. That's one of them. And if that is everything to us, how amazing a blessing that is. It is amazing that 1 John 2 reminds us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to what forgive. And there is no pause. There is no delay. There is no wait. It's faster than Amazon Prime. It is exactly you order it and you ask for it, and it is given without hesitation. Do not ignore a date. Why does this date matter? Because it reminds us of the nature of the mercy of our God. He forgives immediately there is no pause. And knowing his character, is it not all the more worthwhile to know and love him? Who else loves like that? Not us, him. And so it is the impetus to all the more love him and all the more repent when we need to repent. There is present blessing Here's the second point, verses 11 through 13 tell us the principles of holiness the principles of holiness. For for Haggai, he needs Israel, and God wants Haggai to help Israel understand what is going on in their relationship with him. And so Haggai must talk to a priest, as you see in verse 11. He's supposed to ask now to a priest about the law. He is supposed to inquire about some certain issues, and this isn't just, and the principles laid out are not just to clarify the situation that Israel is immediately in. These principles really are universal, They're about holiness. That's why you're talking to a priest. They're about God's relationship with man. That's why you're talking to a priest who mediates that relationship in Israel's culture and society. And therefore these principles are extensive and extend to us Today. They are about our sanctification. And there are two principles that we learn within this second point of the principles of holiness. And they are so applicable and so convicting. And here is the first one that we see in verse 12. Verse 12. And Haggai asks the question If you touch a piece of holy meat folded in a garment, stop there. You say, What in the world is holy meat? It's meat. That's holy, it's pretty simple. It is meat that is set apart, perhaps for a sacred use in the sacrificial system. It is meat that is set apart for worship because Israel would use meat, would use animals for their worship system, whether that be to, Burn it all up unto God in dedication, or to even partake of it with one another in a fellowship kind of situation. In any case, this meat is completely consecrated, it is purposeful, it is so clear, it is of the utmost holiness. In fact, that for that very reason, that's why it's even protected. Notice it's in the fold of a garment because the way things work in Israel and the way things work in life, as we will soon see enough, is that. If the unclean comes in contact with the clean, then the clean becomes unclean. And so you have to protect it. And so Haggai is setting up a situation where he knows this is consecrated meat. It is set apart for a purpose. The purpose is absolutely clear. It is 100% holy in that regard relative to the system. And it is therefore 100% protected to emphasize how dedicated it is. And here's his question. If you touch it, to say a piece of bread, something common, will the bread become holy? That's his question. And then he adds, well, maybe, maybe bread's not a good because it's common, it's so low on the totem pole, it's so ubiquitous that maybe it's not there. Maybe we need some cooked food, it's prepared. It's a little elevated than bread. Maybe that would help. Maybe, maybe what would become holy, if you touched it with a piece of holy meat would be not substances but liquids so then he starts talking about wine maybe that would help you know bread it's too hard cooked meat it's too solid maybe if it touches a liquid the liquid properties then become holy or how about this he says maybe you could use it with oil After all, you anoint priests with oil. You use oil in the sacrificial system. It's already meant to become holy anyways. So maybe if it's so close to the finish line of holiness, you just touch the bread to it or the meat with it, the holy meat, and it all of a sudden becomes holy. Maybe that's how it could work. Maybe it could be any kind of meat. Maybe, Haggai says in his humor, you have to touch it and notice what it says in the text with the fold of the garment. You have to have the right process. You have to have the right finesse. Have you ever watched these cooking shows where they say, you don't just throw it on the pan. You have to do this, that, and the other and flip it this way. And you say, really, do you have to do that? I believe it. I believe all of it. (laughs) That's just another reason why I can't cook. You have to have finesse. You have to have the special process. And Haggai says, what happens if you have perfect technique? You touch this unclean thing so that it doesn't even... Contaminate the clean thing within the fold of the garment. What if you have perfect procedure and technique? If you do it all, will all of that or any of that from the outside make something else holy? The priest, clearly annoyed by his question because he answers basically with one word, no. That's it. And that's the lesson. The outside doesn't make you clean. The outside doesn't make you clean. Sometimes we walk around in life, even in our sanctified life, and we think that external things make us clean. Sometimes people say in Roman Catholicism or otherwise, they think if I do enough rituals, if I come and have enough contact with certain procedures and certain certain kinds of ceremonies, then I will become more and more holy. I will accrue more and more merit. What does our God remind us here The outside doesn't make you holy. Coming in contact doesn't make you holy. And even in our personal life, sometimes we think, oh, if I can just go to church, open my Bible a certain amount of times, pray a certain amount of times a day, then I must be holy. Not necessarily true. Not necessarily true. Could that be the expression of the heart? Yes, but then it's the expression of the heart. As you love Christ more, that is making you more holy by his grace, not just the action itself on the outside. We know that. The outside doesn't make you holy. And furthermore, no one and nothing can be holy in your place. Sometimes we think, oh yeah, well, I just have a lot of holy friends, so I must be holy too. (laughs) Sometimes children think, well, my parents are holy, so I must be holy. That's not how sanctification works. Sanctification, in other words, is individual and internal, not external and substitutionary. It's individual and internal. You're holy as you change from the heart. You're holy as you yourself take responsibility. What does the Lord say both in Old Testament and in New? Be holy for I, the Lord, am holy. No one else can do that for you. Even Galatians 2.20, we remember that it is not I, but Christ who lives in me. But nevertheless, what does Paul earlier say? The life that I now live. There is an emphasis on personal responsibility, even in sanctification. Yes, God works in you. Philippians 2.13, but Philippians 2.12, the verse before says what? Work out your salvation. We remember this. No one can be holy in your place in sanctification. No one can do it for you. And if you think you become more and more holy just because you go through a series of works, you're wrong. That's not how this operates. That's not how a relationship with God works. We are made holy, as 2 Corinthians 3 says, as we behold Christ and we know him more and more and are transformed from him through the spirit in his word. That is how sanctification works. And so the external holy thing cannot make the inside clean. But here's a second question. Second question. So Haggai says in verse 13, well, what if if, though you have an unclean thing, an unclean thing by a corpse? And at this point I should explain what an unclean thing, why does the Bible use clean and unclean? What is that even talking about? It's actually a very fitting description because the category of clean and unclean in the Old Testament does not refer to that which is necessarily moral. Eating bacon is not necessarily and inherently wicked. You can all give thanks to the Lord for that. It is not all, the those things that are about clean and unclean are what we call gray areas. Gray areas. They can go either way. But what God is reminding us is two things. One is this: through His regulations of clean and unclean. He teaches people important lessons about the gray areas and how to honor him through that. And second, along that line, just like it's not necessarily wicked to not take a shower every day. And you say, but that's disgusting. Who would want to be around you? You're unclean. Exactly, exactly. And that is the nature of being unclean in scripture. It is not about that you did something wrong. It is now that you have done something that drives distance between you and God. Not because you sinned necessarily, but you violated preference. And even in the gray areas, all things must be done for the glory of God. Isn't it interesting that in the ceremonial law, it talks a lot about food and drink. And what do we learn later in 1 Corinthians 10, 31? Whatever you eat, our Drink, do it all for the glory of God. It's the same principle carried out from Old Testament to New Testament. Even in the gray areas, if you really love God, if you really want to be about his holiness, those things must conform to him. If you want to be close to him, we honor him, not just in the areas that are black and white, but even in the areas that are gray. And so here it is about clean and unclean. If you touch a dead body, you'll offend the God of life because he is the God of life. He's the most pro-life God there is. And he's the only God there is. And in him is life, so he must be pro-life in that regard. And so touching a dead body then reminds us of how we have offended the preferences of this God and violated and been an affront to his nature and character. And the question is then, if you being unclean like that touch any of those things just mentioned, do they become unclean? And what's the answer? Yes. And the priest says, unclean, one word. Yes, it is. And this is an important reminder. In the Christian life, yes, nothing outside makes you holy, that's true. No one can be holy in your place, that's true. But that means, but the flip side is this, One sin can ruin your entire life. One sin can contaminate everything. And that sin could be an external act. That sin could be from your heart. It really doesn't matter. If there is any sin whatsoever, it makes everything unclean. It destroys your presentability before God. And you say, well, that's a heavy principle. Are you really sure that's how it works? Are you really, really, really sure that it can have that kind of devastating impact? It's just one sin. It's just one act of uncleanness. It's just a little bit. It can't be that big a deal. How often do we say, ah, it doesn't matter, it's fine. No, how come God can't do that? Are you sure God doesn't do it that way? Well, I'm glad you asked. And that moves us to the third point. Here we have, seen the present blessing of God, that he takes us back immediately. Here we have seen the principles of holiness, how God and us relate, that the, that nothing can make you holy outside of yourself and sanctification. It is internal and individual, but sin can ruin everything for you. And if we're wondering, are you really sure? Here's the third point, the problem of Israel, the problem of Israel. Now the principle is going to be applied. And notice in verse 14 what it says. Then Haggai answered and said, so is. Notice that phrase, so is. He takes everything that you just learned, those two principles that nothing outside of yourself can make you holy in sanctification. No one can be holy in your place. And second, sin will contaminate you and he applies it to Israel. And notice the opening words. He says, so is this people. You wanna know what happened to Israel? Just look at the way God describes them here. Normally, as we have learned in the past, God says, my people. And that designation matters. Throughout scripture, God has said over and over and over, my people, Israel, my people, my people. Let my people Go, we know that. And in fact, even in the book of Hosea, Israel was called my people. And so God named one of his children, that is Hosea's children, lo not my people. We know that my word means something. It means relationship. It means possession. It means association. We know that. And here God does not say, so is my people. He says, so is this people. You want to know how serious God is about the fact that sin can ruin everything? Sin creates distance between you and God. It changes you from my people to this people. That's what it does. And you say, well, how extreme is that distance? It is that borderline dissolving the relationship. Notice the next phrase. So is this nation. The word for nation is goi. It is used of all pagan nations. It is used of all nations outside of Israel, typically. And what is God basically saying to Israel? It's as if, it's as if you're not even what? My people at all. It's as if you're no different than everyone else. You are, in essence, a stranger to me. Israel says, it's just one sin. All we failed to do was not build the temple. That's all you said. And we failed to do just one thing. Did it really make a difference? God said it created distance and nearly dissolved the relationship. And you say, but we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God, amen. And that our relationship is secured in Christ, amen. We're not talking about the quantity of relationship here. We're talking about the quality. Sometimes you're so distant from God it's as if you don't even have a relationship with him. You want to know how serious one sin can be? It can put you in that kind of state. That's how serious it is. And it's not just that there's distance in the relationship. It's not that your relationship could even be practically, qualitatively dissolved. It's this, you're disqualified. You're disqualified. Notice the next phrase. So is all the work of their hands. This is everything they try to do. This is everything they try to do. Maybe even everything they try to do for the Lord. And what does God say? All of that is unclean. You thought it was for God. You thought it was for Christ. You thought it was worship. You thought it was lovely. God says it's not. It's disqualified. It's disqualified. One sin and if that's not enough, just to show you the extremity of that, everything is dirty. Notice the last phrase. And that which you bring near, it is unclean. That language of bring near is so important. It's picturesque. It is actually illustrative of exactly everything we've been talking about in our relationship with God. It is used in the book of Leviticus. Some sacrifices, they are called the sacrifices that are brought near. Why? Why? because you were far from God and now you get to what? Come near him through this sacrifice. And so this sacrifice, these kinds of offerings that would be brought near, they are inherently for worship. They are inherently for relationship. They are inherently to commune and draw near and be in close and intimate communion with God. And what does God say? For even those things that are so obviously and so deliberately purposeful to love and know and care for and adore God, he says, that is what? Unclean. You come to church, and you are deliberately here for worship, but there is unconfessed sin in our lives, what does God say? Unclean, unclean. Everything you might have thought you've, we've done in our lives for Christ, for God, can be what? Unclean, if we do not take care of our sin. That is how serious sin is. That is the seriousness of Israel's problem. And this is a reminder to us then, our God forgives freely. Our God forgives immediately. We've seen that, but we need to be real about the nature of our sin. And it is a constant reminder, keep confessing your sin. It is a reminder, like in Matthew chapter 5, if you know that your brother has something against you and you are bringing an offering to God, stop bringing the offering and go reconcile with your brother. Why? Because You don't want your offering to become unclean. Make worship worship. Confess sin. Confess sin. That is the issue of Israel's problem. Well, final point. All of this is moving to one single point, and that is the promise of blessing for obedience. The promise of blessing. We've talked about the present blessing. God takes us immediately back. We talked about the principles involved, that no one can be holy in your place, and that sin can ruin everything, and we saw that lived out in the problem of Israel, but now we can see all of that change in the promise for Israel's obedience, and we see that in verses 15 through the end of this passage, verse 19. And notice, notice in verse 15, and notice in verse 18, look at the text. Do you see how it says, set your heart from this day? It says it two times, one in verse 15, and then one in verse 18. What we have with that repeated phrase is a before and after picture. We're familiar with this. As even children, we look at what happens before and what happens in after. We look at this in commercials, and we look at this in marketing, and they even have pick out the 10 differences between one picture and the other picture. What Haggai is doing here is he says, I'm going to give you something before, and you better understand it, and I'm going to give you something after, and you better understand it. That is what he is doing for us here. It reminds me of a joke in Israel where there is this comic strip of, an, of a commercial about I think it's Pepsi or Coke, whichever one that's not popular in Israel. And it reads like this from left to right. You have a person in the desert and they're dead. And then they get Coke and they drink it and then they live. And it reads from that from left to right. But the problem is in Israel, Hebrew is right to left. So they read it as you are very healthy. Then you drink Coke and then you're dead in the wilderness. Make sure that you have the right before and after which one is which. Now, in verses 15 through 19, Haggai gives the before and after picture. And before, it is very dark. Set your heart. Make sure you understand this from the inside out. That's where obedience starts from this day, from the day that you failed to set one stone for another. Talk about apathy. You don't even want to lift a rock. For God. That's how apathetic Israel was. From the time, verse 16, that they would put in 20 heaps and there would only be 10 and there would only be 50 troughs of wine, but they'd only get 20. This is the time when God disciplined his people. It's clear. And what should they learn at this time? Verse 17, I struck you with scorching wind. You say, what a scorching wind? It's exactly that. It's a very, very hot wind that dehydrates people. And it can actually kill them. And it certainly kills your crops. This word and this punishment is associated exclusively in the Old Testament with God's curse. God says, when you feel the scorching wind, you know I've cursed you, I've caused it to happen. What about the mildew, the green stuff that overtakes and eats the plants that survive of that? That is, also exclu- that is also mentioned in Deuteronomy 28 for God's curse. What about the hail? What did God use hail on originally? The nation of Egypt. And God says, take the hint. I'm treating you like who? Egypt. And even though God made it so clear, I'm cursing you, I'm cursing you, I'm cursing you. I'm not treating you like Israel. It's as if you're not Israel to me. It's like you're Egypt. What did they do? It says this at the end of verse 17, they did not repent. And God says, set your heart. Do you understand where your relationship with me really is? Sometimes we need to step back and be honest about our relationship with God. Sometimes when we're at church, how's everything going? Fine. It's instinctive. It's a knee-jerk reaction. Everything's always fine. How's your walk with the Lord? Oh, it's good. It's fine. It reminds me sometimes in marriage counseling when one spouse says, answers the question, how's everything going? And they say, oh, it's good. And the other spouse looks and they have this look of utter confusion as if, have you been out of this world this entire time? We need to be honest about our relationship with God. God says, Israel, set your heart. Do you really know what your relationship is right now with me? If you think everything's fine, you're deluded. You're delusional. I am cursing you with every curse that I have written about in the Old Testament, and you are not repenting. That's what it's been like this whole time. Do not be confused. Do not trick yourself into thinking, my relationship with God is fine. When you're under discipline, and when you have not actually loved or given him thought from your heart, stop deceiving yourself. Set your heart on this. But there's a before picture but then there's the after picture. And here's what God says, and I love this. I love this. Set your heart, verse 18. He even says it twice. Set your heart. So important. Beginning of the verse and the end of verse 18. And he says this, from the moment, from this very day, from the very time that the foundation of the temple was laid. Think about that. This isn't just that God took Israel's obedience immediately. It's that God immediately lavishes blessing and changes everything around in the relationship for them when their obedience is initial. Even when their obedience is incomplete. Think about this. If you've ever built a house before, if you've ever seen anything about house building before, laying a foundation does not equal you have a house, okay? There's many things missing. It's basically pointless just to have a foundation and call it a home at that point. That doesn't work, And God says, but it works for me. I'll take it. It's everything. Come on back. How often is it that when we see initial signs of change in people, we say, oh, good job, but you got more to do. We say that. Or, oh, yeah, well, we'll wait and see. Truth and time go hand in hand. And we understand that. And that is true. But what does our God do? Even when our obedience is incomplete, even when our obedience is just starting, even when our obedience is in its initial stages, God says, I love that. That is so great. Watch from this day forward. I will no longer curse you. I will bless you. That is how much God loves his people. He doesn't just put us on probation all the time. He just takes us back 100% at the first sign that he can. That is the deep compassion of our God. And you say, but in the middle of this Haggai asks this question about is there a seed in the barn and and the vine and the fig and the pomegranate and the and the olive tree do they do they give fruit and the answer is no they don't Yeah it's clear Israel's under curse and Haggai rubs that in their face you are under curse and all of that though is to create an immediate contrast with what they now have what they now have is not fruit on the tree. What they now have is not fruit on the vine. What they now have is not a bunch of pomegranates. What they now have, God says is this, from this day forward, I, I will bless you. You know, God could have just given them everything that they wanted immediately, but here would be Israel's problem and here would be our problem. You would just love the gift and not the giver. And you would forget what really mattered. And what really mattered, Haggai points out, is not that you get everything back, even though that will come because God will bless and he will turn it all around. What really mattered is that you got God who blesses you now, even though originally he cursed you. That's what really matters. That's what really matters. Because once you have God, you have everything because he is everything to us. And that brings us full circle, does it not? because we began this time talking about the beauty of a relationship with God, that there is nothing more precious than Christ. Give me Jesus. And as we've talked about this relationship with him, we've understood the nature of sin and obedience and disobedience, that no one can live your Christian life for you in And rather, sin, though, could contaminate everything. And it really does in powerful ways, even disqualifying us if we're not careful in our walk with Christ. And we need to be real about our relationship with God. That is all true. But here's what we've also seen at the same time, that the moment we turn from our sin, immediately, and even if our repentance and our obedience is initial and preliminary, God takes us back just like that in full Now that is a blessing. And knowing that kind of mercy and knowing that kind of compassion highlights all the more why he is so good and why we should undyingly love him. When you wonder why you should obey, you just remember this. This is the God we serve when you wonder, is it worth it to put off the whole world and all of its glamor and allure, you remember this, give me Jesus. Just give me Jesus. Take this world from me. The things that the world offers, they are not worth it. The blessing of obedience is this, we now have been reconciled to God in our relationship with him. And that's everything to us because he is everything to us. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, we are, humbled that we can know you and even in knowing you we are failures and our sin makes all things unclean in your sight for you are so holy but you are so perfect you just keep taking us back you keep forgiving us you don't put us on probation you keep bringing us unto yourself in full you keep lavishing your blessings on us You keep abounding in mercy over and over and over, even when we are not quick to forgive others. Even when we hold grudges, you do not hold out on us. You are immediate, you are quick, and you are full in your compassion to us. And so, Lord, we repent of our sins, and we want you. Thank you for giving us, Jesus, and may he always be everything to us, and may The reward of our obedience be that we have him, even as he has us. In your name we pray. Amen.